This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm Farajasat. And before we go to this week's episode, I want to share some exciting news. We've recently launched Intelligence Squared Plus, a new digital subscription service for online events. If you're a fan of our podcast, you can now listen to them while they're being recorded. You can join our most high profile speakers in live interactive online events and ask your questions directly to them from the comfort of your home. We have an amazing lineup over the coming months, from authors like Margaret Atwood and Salman Rushdie to big thinkers like the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman and the economist Thomas Piketty, as well as the big names in arts and culture like the singer Paloma Faith, chef Yotam Atalengi and podcaster Elizabeth Day. If you still need convincing, here's a message from our friend Stephen Fry. Hello, I'm Stephen Fry and I'd like to encourage you to subscribe to Intelligence Squared Plus, the new and very modestly priced digital subscription service from my friends at Intelligence Squared. You would, I think, be hard-pressed to find an organisation that better presents and supports debate, discussion and civilised, rigorous conversation, perhaps never before has the world needed all of these things quite so keenly. Perhaps you'll be kind enough to support Intelligence Squared by signing up for this service. It only costs £5 a month. Do consider it. Thank you very much indeed. So there you have it. If you're interested, please do click on the link in our podcast description or go to intelligencesquared.com. We hope to see you virtually at one of our online events very soon. And I'll now hand over to my colleague Connor to tell us more about this week's episode. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, a producer at Intelligence Squared, and welcome to this week's episode. Today we were joined by Danny Dorling, author of a new book entitled Slowdown, The End of the Great Acceleration and Why It's Good for Our Planet, Our Economy and Our Lives. Danny spoke to Linda Yu, author, economist and broadcaster, who many of you will have heard on the podcast before, and they have an interesting conversation all about how fertility rates, GDP growth per person and even technological progress are all on the decline, yet perhaps we shouldn't see this as such a bad thing. 
and maybe we should embrace this moment of slowing down and stability. So lots of great ideas, very relevant and pertinent to the current moment with the coronavirus lockdown, and we hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Linda Yu. I'm an economist and author. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about our podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with Danny Dorling. Welcome, Danny. Hi there. Let's start with the subtitle of your book, which is The End of the Great Acceleration and Why It's Good for the Planet, the Economy and Our Lives. So firstly, what is the Great Acceleration? There are various accelerations that I describe in the book. The, the biggest one, uh, I think by far the most important, is the acceleration in our numbers, in the numbers of human beings. And that began really around about 1800, 1820. We went from there being around about one billion of us on the planet, and we'd been slowly rising in number, to now about eight billion. So doubled, doubled, doubled again in the space of just a few generations. That, that's never happened before in human history in that short amount of time, and it'll almost certainly never happen again. However, there, there are other accelerations. GDP, uh, which we estimate in the past and which we've measured really properly since about 1950, GDP was accelerating, the, the growth in it was accelerating in the past, but that acceleration began to slow down in the 50s, 60s, 70s, each decade, GDP growth was a bit less than it was uh, the decade before. So you can find all kinds of accelerations that, that we have had, and in almost all cases, they're now decelerating, still rising, our population numbers are still rising, our GDP in general is still rising, but much more slowly uh, than it was in the past. So you write in the book that, quote, a slowdown is upon us, and this is something to be very thankful for. The alternative, an ever-growing total human population, ever more economically divided societies, ever greater consumption per head, would be a catastrophe, end quote. Yeah. So mild statement there, Danny, to explain your <laughs> argument. <laughs> well, uh, the, the problem... The problem I had with the book is slowdown was a really obvious title for it. But slowdown has connotations uh, that are bad. We tend to think of slowdown as not good. We have become used to a world where we think it is speeding up. That's partly because for our grandparents and great-grandparents it was, and, and the way in which we talk and think is often rooted in the distant past. And so when you talk about a slowdown, uh, it's generally seen as problematic. And so I just thought the subtitle needs to explain it isn't. Um, I think the easiest one to think about is total human population. It's still almost certainly going to rise to about 9 billion, maybe 10, possibly 11. There's an enormous variation around, by the way, these estimates. But it is almost certainly going to stop rising within the lifetimes of babies who have been born this year. Uh, and this is the first time that human population across the planet doesn't rise out outside of wartime pandemic pestilence and, and, and so on um now there aren't many people who would say oh but we, we need 15 billion or we need 20 or we need 30 billion people you know there is a general acceptance that there are probably around about enough of us at the moment in fact there's quite a lot of people who think there are too many but it's i think it's relatively easy to show that you can feed and have happy this number of people on the planet. The only way in which we could carry on growing at the rate we were growing when I was born, when I was born we were growing at 2% a year, the fastest ever rate of population growth, 
The only way we could really do that is if we were to leave the planet and start colonising other planets. And that really is pretty unlikely, uh, at least for many, many centuries uh, to come. And so I think it's quite easy to, to say that the slowdown of population growth is OK. Now, harder to sell the slowdown in economic growth. Um, but many of us in the richest countries of the world uh, have not seen our levels of happiness rise that highly in recent decades. Whereas before, when we were seeing material improvements in living standards, when we were be- being able to heat our homes to a decent level, when we were able to you know, get clothes to enough to clothe us, that really didn't improve our standard of living. But we've got to a point now where it can be argued that increasing wealth doesn't necessarily appear to make people much happier. And, and of course, along with increasing wealth and consumption, there's increased pollution. And the greatest threat to us, the biggest greatest threat, is climate change. And the only way in which you can halt climate change is to reduce dramatically carbon pollution in the median term. And that requires a reduction in consumption, particularly of things that involve the production of a lot of carbon. Mm. I want to probe each of these um, in turn. So shall we start with population growth? So Mm -hmm. um, you wrote that the third great slowdown in the Earth's human population rise is taking place right now, arguably having started in the late 1960s but with the greatest deceleration of all set to occur from this year onward. So if you do please elaborate and also um, why do you think population growth wouldn't accelerate again um, as it has Uh, at least uh, two or three times before? Uh, Okay, I, I should explain why I said the third there. The first two, the first big deceleration occurred after 1492, uh, after we arrived in the Americas and we arrived with our diseases and the disease absolutely spread across the Americas before us and the world population slowed down. Dipped slightly, it was still growing elsewhere but slowed down. The second big deceleration you can see in the the world uh, was around about 1800, 1810, 1820 and it was associated with a and the disruption caused by the colonisation particularly of Africa. But these were wars, invasions, diseases and so on. The current slowdown is all about people having fewer children. It's not about more deaths. It's about dramatically lower numbers of births. And most interestingly, most recently in the last 10 years, fertility rates have fallen fastest in those places where they were highest, in the poorest of countries in the world. Uh, You're suddenly seeing dramatic falls in the average number of children that women are having there. Now, it's quite hard to work out exactly why, but it's generally seen as good news. There's always a lot of encouragement for this. We make sure, we try and make sure that people have access to contraception and so on. But poorer countries are slowing down in terms of the number of children they have faster than richer countries did in the the past. And there is nowhere, there is nowhere where this is reversing. So even when governments try as they try in Russia and they try in Turkey to encourage women to have more children, or as they try in France where you actually receive a higher higher child benefit for the third child rather than the second. When countries try and encourage people to have more children, those countries where they've had less than two children per woman for quite a long time, women are not easily bribed or persuaded (laughs) to do that. And so what we don't know 
is whether the average will settle around two or slightly under two for some time. Uh, and the, the most kind of, if you like, forward places in the world in terms of this, uh, places like Japan, cities, great cities like Tokyo, at the moment you're looking at 1.3, 1.4 children per couple, and that's incredibly low. What about places in Africa? The very poorest, smallest countries, people still have, say, six children on average, but that is rapidly moving down towards five and then towards four on the latest estimates that the United Nations produce. Every two years, the United Nations updates its population estimates of the world, its estimates of fertility in each country, its estimates of mortality. And in the very latest estimates, it has reduced what it says it thinks the world will get to. And there are, there are lots of arguments that say it may not have reduced it enough. And it's the kind of thing that, that really matters is education uh, for women. So as secondary education becomes better and more available, even in the very poorest parts of the poorest countries in Africa and in Haiti and, and in the poorest parts of India, as secondary education finally becomes available and good, women, young women are delaying the time that they have their first child because they're at, they're at school or they go into a job which is better than what their mothers went to because of that education. And this is, the I think, the biggest key to why the, the slowdown is accelerating in terms of births at the moment. It, it's what's happening in, in some of the poorest parts of the world. And education doesn't just give you opportunities for better work. It tells you that you are more worthwhile. And... The average woman in the world, this sounds a bit trite, but it's true, the average woman in the world wants half a child less than the average man they're there with. And as women begin to value themselves more, as people in general stop devaluing women as much, particularly in areas of high fertility, that's where you're beginning to see fertility falling faster than we'd seen it fall elsewhere. And hence some of the optimism about slowdown, some of why I say we'll probably get to 9 billion people. We may not get to 10. It's because of this quite recent data, which has shown this acceleration in the slowdown in fertility worldwide. So that leads me to the next quote from your book, which is, quote, soon, even in the very poorest countries, people will no longer necessarily starve or grow up stunted, end quote. Why is that? At the moment... The, the reason that people starve in the world is uh, not a lack of food. We actually have enough food for everybody in the world. It's a maldistribution of food. We have a number of us who eat too much and uh, are encouraged to eat too much. You know, it's, it's a business. People, you know, there's advertising. There's quite a lot of wastage of food that goes on. That's food that we buy that we throw away or also food that gets wasted in, in transit. But also... As population growth slows down, as population numbers become more predictable, it becomes easier and more and, and more simpler to ensure that there is enough food where it needs to be. Famines have been studied for a long time. Amata Sen did some of the best studies of famines in the past. And we try to be very careful and not to be too optimistic. But if you think about large famines in the world, we haven't had very many very recently. You really have to go back to East Africa and the 1980s for, for the last very big famine. And that, again, was a problem of distribution. If the food was available in the world, it just, it just wasn't available uh, there. So I think we can be optimistic about things like food. 
It gets harder when we worry about things like water and are there too many people living in places where there is going to be less water available in future. But in general, as our numbers become more stable, the ability to predict our needs and and what is sensible becomes easier and easier. You have to remember, you only have to go back to the 1960s to a growth rate where you were looking at countries doubling in populations in just a few decades. And that was very, very hard to plan for. In terms of fertility, you write about, um, we've already just said, the slowdown. Um, you call them Gen X. I'm going to define this because the definitions of these groups are always uh, good to, to have clear. So those who were born between 1956 and 1981. So with the slowdown uh, in terms of uh, the fertility rates that you've described and some of the issues that related to that, For developed economies, what kind of challenges does a slowdown in population pose for policymaking? There are all kinds of challenges, which is one of the reasons why some countries have been trying to encourage women to have more children. Because some policymakers can look at this very simply and say, oh, if only we could get women to have two children on average, it would would be much better for us. But that's a silly way of of planning, particularly in a world where people move around. So those parts of the world with lower fertility are good places uh, for people to move to from places with higher fertility. And the more migration of that kind uh, that we that we get, actually the faster the slowdown will be overall, because when people migrate to a, a place of low fertility, they tend to have fewer children than they would have had if they stayed where they were. For, for Generation X, I mean, this is my generation, this is people in their in their 50s, some in their 40s, we are not going to be able to rely on an ever-growing younger set of people to do things like fund our pensions. Now, pension systems work differently in all... You know, and I'm not an expert on pension systems at all, but they're very different in different countries. But one way or another, whether from being invested in stocks and shares or being provided by a government... There is an assumption that the work and labour and and effort of younger people will somehow provide for for older people. And and that can work when your populations are growing, when when each generation is is bigger. Uh, But that's harder to sustain when you're not looking at future generations being as big as the one that's just passed through. And that's where we are at the moment. And I want to focus on a few issues that you cover, which are counterintuitive to get our heads around. So firstly, has debt slowed down? Government debt rose (laughs) during the 2008 financial crisis and debt is rising now. Uh, But would you argue that COVID-19 is a one-off blip? COVID-19, I mean, there'll come a time when, when so in the last few weeks, every every interview I've done, of course, is, is COVID-19. It's interesting how much we are transfixed by the immediate. I mean, it, this is a pandemic. We haven't had a serious pandemic since 1968. Most people don't even remember the pandemic of 1968. It was flu and it was bigger than this. But in general, past pandemics, at least since 1665, have had a relatively minor effect uh, on things like debt and the economy. However, the big past pandemics that we tend to think of, the 1918-19 influenza or that 1968 uh, influenza, they both hit at a time of acceleration. 
when population growth was increasing anyway, when the economy was actually growing even after the First World War. And so, for instance, the 1918 pandemic, worldwide GDP fell by 14% that year, but it rose by 16% the year after. Because we're now in a time of slowdown, because people were already talking about a global recession that may have been coming, because they were talking about trade wars between China and the USA, because there was already a sense, say, that our pollution was unmanageable. There were climate protests, if you remember, around the world before it became impossible to protest. Because this pandemic has hit at a time when we were already slowing down, it is not impossible that its effect could be larger than that of most pandemics. Now, debt, I mean, the reason I called the book Slowdown is I began the book trying to look for that half of things which were increasing and accelerating and that half which were decreasing or slowing down. And I was sure that debt would be one of the things which was increasing. Um, I work in the UK. We've introduced very large student debt relatively recently. We, We introduced the biggest increase in 2012. We're always taught about the student debt rising in uh, the United States. So what I did is, is I began to look at it, to look at the debt, and to try to get an idea of actually how fast was it growing. And when I did that, I found that it is still growing. It's still growing, for instance, for students in the USA, and it's still growing, well, was, for car purchasing. But the rate of growth has shifted. So the acceleration is slowing down in the debt, even with national debt. Now, we will see a great increase uh, because countries are are currently borrowing or borrowing from themselves in the kind of weirdest of ways that they're allowed to make up to do it. But we shouldn't necessarily think that what happens in any one year is going to set the picture for a much longer time. We could, for instance, and you, you're, you're much more qualified than I am, I'm a geographer, but we could, for instance, see inflation increase around the world and inflation would burn away debt in some ways. We, ha- we have little idea about what is about to happen short term. Month by month, week by week, year by year, we'd have little idea. But if we step back and look decade by decade, we can see that we have been slowing down and it becomes sensible when you've been slowing down for several decades to say, this looks like it's setting. We should begin to accept that this this really is happening. Uh, and it, there were only a few things in the book which were accelerating. And all of those have actually started to slow down since the, since the book was published. But that is because of the pandemic. Mm, mm, it was fascinating. Um, so, I mean, a lot of people would find this um, quite counterintuitive, uh, the debt issue, because partly of what you write about is slower growth. And slower growth means less money to you know, earned and less tax revenue. So, you know, just trace the kind of, you know, how, how would you dispel the, uh, the perception that government debt is actually, um, has been, has been growing and, um, yeah, well, people are right. It has been growing, um, in general. At a slower pace. At a slower pace than it was growing before. Now, and this isn't just 2008, although 2008 was, was an absolute, you know, shock and news, but it, it does reduce. We, we've learned to think that things will carry on increasing because they have, even when it is impossible for them to carry on increasing. 
A good example would be house prices. I, I look in the book as lovely house price series for Amsterdam. And in Amsterdam, house prices in real terms actually peaked several centuries ago and, and then fell. Uh, they fell for 200 years in, in real terms. And of course, this always eventually happens you know, with almost any good. Its value in relation to, to wages and salaries cannot carry on rising forever uh, because otherwise other things have to become cheaper to allow you to spend more on that. Now, when you say, you know, I have been saying for years, as some kind of miserable people like me say, the value of London of housing in London is based on sentiment. It makes no sense that it is the most expensive place in Europe. It is simply because people believe it'll carry on rising in future that they can sell housing at that price or because they think it's a safe store of wealth for their family if they're very wealthy. But it's based on sentiment. It isn't actually that you can recoup in rent the amount of money you need to, to get a mortgage on a house anywhere near a, near a tube stop in London. When I say that kind of thing, people poo-poo, they, and that's partly why, if a, if a price is based on sentiment, uh, it is based on the fact that nearsayers like me won't be believed. Until, of course, you get to the point where it doesn't rise anymore. And then what we do, and this, is, this annoys me, and this is why I worry that I, I may be wrong or not, what we do is we then to look at individual events and we say, oh, it would have risen, except that there was a pandemic or an oil shock or a war or something else. But step back and look out. And of course, these things cannot carry on uh, rising forever. Uh, we don't necessarily have to worry too much about the fact that if our economy was more stable, if it wasn't growing by 1%, 1.5%, we often hope for 2% a year, but was growing by half a percent or zero. That doesn't mean that most people's lives have to get worse. Uh, there are many, many things about people's lives that can be made better without economic growth. And a great example is housing. Uh, we have more bedrooms per person than we have ever had in the UK. Uh, we have, in effect, more housing than we've ever had. But we distribute it far worse than we did in, say, 1981 or 1971. There were more people who owned multiple houses than before, and there were, has there been a big increase in people where there's a single individual in a house with four or five bedrooms living on their, in their own. Uh, now, there are various reasons why we began to distribute housing in a worse and worse way, but when you look at people's ability to house themselves or their families it can largely be improved without actually having to build more houses. You'd simply need a more sensible arrangement and encouragement for people to live to live a bit more efficiently than they currently do. And of course, you know, it's, it's a terrible case now that, you know, one of the worst possible situations to be in at the moment is to be in a very large house on your own because you're not allowed out. But, you know, it's... It's possible to see how this can change. One reason that people hang around in large houses on their own, often when they're elderly, is because they think the value is rising at the house and the longer they hang around, the more money they give to their children. If house prices begin to fall, it becomes sensible to try and get yourself out of that large house into a smaller house before the price of the larger house falls further. So it would be in the interest of you personally, financially, and your children to downsize. And that is the kind of improvement in living standards that we could see across the country, which can happen 
without there needing to be any economic growth at all. And housing is one of the most important things to people. It's one of the things that people spend the most of their money on, particularly the poor, particularly the young, because they almost always have to rent privately. And that's an enormous expense. And in terms of slowdown, what about climate change and global warming? The climate change was one of the four things which were accelerating still. So the actual temperature, that the rises in temperature each year were not just going up, they were going up slightly faster than the year before. And again, this is quite recent. It's the last 10 or 15 years. If you might remember, about 10 years ago, we used to have climate change sceptics, you know, people who would argue with the science and so on. And you probably noticed they've disappeared. And one reason that the climate change sceptics have largely disappeared is that what did look like a slightly debatable situation a decade ago has become glaringly obvious as we've had hot year after hot year after hot year. Um, this looked awful. This looked terrible. It looked like we were going to, you know, we're already at one degrees, we're going to breach 1.5, then two. Um, and even on the most optimistic scenarios of what happens, it generally is not good news for a species to be, have its environment changed that fast, let alone all the other species. Now, what has actually happened is that temperature may have stopped rising in February and March of this year. We won't yet know, and there's a huge amount of variability in, t- in temperature estimates but something that looked as if it would take decades and decades to begin to slow down, actually because of this tragedy, may already have slowed down. NASA produced an estimate for February, and the estimate for February is a tenth of a degree below what it was for February the year before. Why? Because there's almost a perfect linear relationship between CO2 polluting the atmosphere and temperature rise. It's really nice and simple. The more CO2 you put in, the faster temperature rises in the greenhouse gas effect. And of course, CO2 pollution has absolutely plummeted. If you wanted a demonstration of this, you couldn't have a better one than we have now. Initially, at the end of January, uh, a quarter of the CO2 pollution of China had gone. But now, of course, it's much, much less. But you can see in the graphs in the book Slowdown, you can see the effects of recessions on carbon emissions and then on temperatures. So this isn't a one-off thing. Accelerated accelerated periods of economic growth often are followed by, or even at exactly the same time, accelerated periods of, of, of carbon pollution. Uh, and you know, if you wanted any single reason to think of slowdown as, as being a good thing, that that really obvious relationship between warming the planet up and, in a sense, how much oil we were burning how much carbon we're putting into the atmosphere is one of the simplest ones to understand. And it can suddenly change. It is not impossible. Um, You wouldn't wish for a change like this or as sudden as this, but this is what we have been given. This is what has happened. And it should get people to at least think, what flight do you need to take? Do you really need to take? What holidays would actually make you happy? How many clothes do you really need to buy? How many more clothes than you can possibly wear do you need to buy? What is most important to you and what isn't as important to you as you, as you thought it was? And we can implore people to think about these things and we can draw graphs and look at the numbers. But, you know, the real world experience of it is, is, much, is much more effective. Um, absolutely fascinating, Danny. Um, and now it's time for a quick break. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up, life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Hello, I'm Farajasat from Intelligence Squared. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Before we get back to it, I'd like to encourage you our loyal podcast listeners, to subscribe to Intelligence Squared Plus, our new subscription service for online interactive events. Intelligence Squared brings together the world's top thought leaders and opinion formers, from Margaret Atwood, Thomas Friedman and Salman Rushdie, to Mehdi Hassan, Bernadine Evaristo and Elizabeth Day. Join us and take part in these exclusive online events where you can ask your questions directly to our speakers. It's only £5 a month and you get the first month completely free please do consider supporting Intelligence Squared and subscribe now by clicking the link in our podcast description. Thank you so much. Welcome back. I'm here with Danny Dorling. He's a professor of geography at Oxford, and we're talking about his new book, Slowdown, The End of the Great Acceleration and Why It's Good for the Planet, the Economy, and Our Lives. So, Danny, I want to pick up on a a couple of other issues that you touch on in terms of a slowdown, which, again, might seem counterintuitive. So, on technology and data, let's start with technology, you write, Quote, we now face a future of fewer discoveries, fewer new gizmos, and fewer, quote, great men, close quote. How has innovation slowed down? You're going to worry a lot of people with that quote. Yeah, well, I was looking for evidence of innovation increasing, uh, and in particular of data increasing as we talk about big data and so on. But when I managed to find studies that had measured it, I I actually found claims were being made by those people who tried to measure these things that said the 1930s was the period of of the greatest 
innovation in, in new inventions and because electricity was fairly well established by 1930s and people were working out things that they could do with electricity. We tend to forget how much we invented not very long ago. Uh, the tractor is only just over 100 years ago. Just over 100 years ago, all the ploughing in fields was done by oxes and horses and occasionally by people. The tractor was an incredible invention. More recently, we haven't seen the same kind of rate of innovation that we saw in the past. So, the aeroplane that I most often fly, which is a 747, is as old as me. The first test flights were in 1968. I first used the internet when I went to university uh, in 1986. I was very lucky. I went to Newcastle-upon-Tyne. It was one of the few universities that was actually on the very early internet. But I was an 18-year-old when I used the internet, and I had a Windows computer system. I was nerdy and slightly odd, but we like to tell ourselves that there are new things being invented all the time that are incredibly important and much more important than things in the past. But when you look at the actual inventions, our grandparents and great-grandparents saw, saw their world utterly transformed, moving pictures, the ability to speak to relatives far away, television, then colour television and so on. And what do we get? Well, we kind of get, I don't know, 3D cinema, which is not that much of an innovation. Phones where you can say, you know, the amount of technology on this phone would be enough uh, to do the moonshot in the 1960s. But we're not using our phones to do something as ingenious as a moonshot, are we? You know, we're actually using them to take pictures of ourselves. And when you look at the increase in data in the world, more and more of the increase is duplicates of data that we already had. We are not changing our world and, and changing the way we live at the same rate we were in the past. Let, let me give you one last example to think about. I can remember the kind of washing machines that we had as a child. I, I can remember the, the, how you had to load them from the top and the amount of noise they made. Washing machines are now all pretty standard. It's a white box. It's in your house, and next to it, above it or below it, there'll probably be a tumble dryer. And you have those two white boxes, and you've had those two white boxes for some time. Nobody's invented a third white box. There isn't one that irons your clothes or does something else, because the first two boxes work. Air conditioning. You know, we have now introduced air conditioning. We can get the temperatures of our rooms just about perfect. There isn't another innovation that'll get them with a hundredth of a degree that we can feel. So lots of things are kind of one-off improvements where it's quite hard to see how there'll be another qualitative change that is going to be as big again. This isn't to say that universities will not carry on trumpeting how great their work is and People aren't being lazy in universities. They're not being lazy in private research labs. They're really trying to find out new things. But there aren't that many different kinds of uses that you can make to electricity or different uses that you can do for a computer. Three times in my life, I have lived through an artificial intelligence revolution where people have said, artificial intelligence is just about to do this. And, you know, by the time it gets to the third time, you begin to say, yes, the pattern recognition is very good. Yes, the automatic translation of languages is very clever. The ability to spot faces is clever. And the ability for Siri and Alexa to be able to understand what you're saying is pattern recognition. But it's not artificial intelligence soon. It's not saying we won't get it. It's just that we have had too much hype too, too often. Uh, I think I put in the book, as I was finishing the book off last year, 
the innovation at one of these big uh, conferences in the States where they bring out latest gizmos, the news, leading news story was that somebody had invented a mobile phone that you could bend. Uh, and at this point, you begin to think, have they really run out of ideas of something useful that, that we can have? So I may be over, overstressing it a bit, but we live in a world where a lot of people are paid a lot of money to say we're speeding up and to try to sell people things that are only slightly different to what they already have. And that makes us think that things are accelerating, even when the changes in our lives and changes in the last few decades in, in what we do and what what we work with are not as big as the changes for our parents or for their parents. Well, as you know, this has been a huge area of debate for economists and um, and others around whether or not we will ever have inventions that can transform our lives um, in the way that you describe, like uh, the first and second industrial revolutions. So I think your, um, I think this chapter is going to uh, engender a lot more debate on us because one of the uh, the big areas um, is artificial intelligence so I think that's going to be uh, that's going to be I'm sure uh, one of the things that um, people will be watching and um, you know seeing whether or not um, you should be a techno optimist or a techno pessimist I think those are the terms that I was uh, told to describe people who believe in is one it, way or yeah. the other <laughs> I'm I'm not necessarily a techno-pessimist. I mean, it's great. Take the Human Genome Project. It's absolutely brilliant that that we have the human genome. But what it's taught us is that you can't get one-off individual cures for individual people. You can learn a lot about groups of people from genetics, uh, but we can't create designer babies. We we cannot pick out embryos and create and have the clever one. Uh, In a way... I'd say that's progress. I I think it's great that we know more truth than we know before. But that isn't allowing you to design new human beings. Or the fact that we don't have a teleporter. You know, when I was young, everybody was teleporting all over the the place on movies and so on. Is it terrible that we don't have some of these uh, things that we actually imagined? You can still have incredible innovation. I end the book looking at Japan and how Japanese society is changing. In particular, how the aristocracy, the the royal family, has changed and social changes. There's no reason why we can't have a kind of industrial revolution in in our relationships with each other. It's just that an industrial revolution where we will have our own little spaceships seems less and less likely each Mm. decade. (laughs) You touched on data already. You discuss how data is slowing down. And again, I think it's going to be counterintuitive to the perception that many have that data is speeding up in the era of big data. So just describe um, for us how data has slowed down. Uh, Well, it's certainly increasing. The amount of data we have is increasing and our ability to store it's increasing. It's quite hard to find things that are meaningful to measure. I mean, the one I I triumph in the book is Wikipedia, because Wikipedia is relatively recent. I find it incredibly useful. I I think it's a wonderful new invention. But you can can see with Wikipedia, in the first three or four or five years, its growth was accelerating, the number of entries in it accelerated. But then that rise began to slow down, still rising, but not as fast. Then there was a little acceleration again, as people invented a thing called stubs, where you could, you could define things related to entries in Wikipedia, and then it started slowing down again. And why? 
because fundamentally there are a limited finite number of things you might want to look up in Wikipedia. (laughs) There isn't an infinite number of entries. You know, there are only almost 8 billion of us. 8 billion might sound a lot, but it's not actually that huge a number. If you look at the total data storage in the world, you can find out, I think, off the top of my head, it's something like we store 8 billion items times 8 billion people. Now, there aren't 8 billion things to know about me. So a huge, a huge amount, a huge amount of, of this storage is duplication. It's not great data. A lot of it is, is video and, and photos of ourselves, which are nice to have. But there becomes a limit to you know, how many pictures of yourself do you need and how many duplicates of it around the world uh, do there need to be. We've kind of created a sort of giant digital rubbish tip. Um, that, you know, I'm sure we can kind of archive it and we, we have caverns in Iceland where the cloud servers e- e- exist and, and, you know, don't pollute too much because they're already cooled by the fact it is cool there anyway. But it's the, the idea that we're going to increase our data more and somehow benefit from this, it's not hard. I don't think it's hard to unpick that and say... This doesn't make much sense. It is wonderful to have an internet. It is wonderful to have the freedom uh, to be able to read almost anything from your own house for almost anybody. That's great. Uh, I grew up at a time when in the, in the town I grew up in, there were just two libraries I could go into. Uh, there was a city library and there was a library called Bowen Old Library in Headington. And the reason I'm giving you this example is two libraries was the town was Oxford. There were another 100 libraries that I was not allowed into as a child growing up in the city of Oxford because they were the university libraries. Now, that monopoly on information has utterly got that, you know, and that's a lovely example of something that's sped up. But the genie's out of the bottle. The scientific papers are up. We've managed to work out ways to stop them being behind paywalls if they're an interesting paper and so on. Um, That information is out there. It's not going to increase. You can't really increase the amount of news more than the amount of news there already is. You know, we have a saturation uh, uh, going on. And so when you begin to actually measure it, you don't find an acceleration on pages on the Internet being read. What you find is that we're beginning to settle down to the steady picture of what it is we're interested in, what we look for. You can see changes in children in when they move from Facebook to Instagram to Snapchat and so on. And you see things you might not have predicted, like tweets carrying on being popular. But it, it's a kind of more of a stability than an accelerated change that is out of, out of control. Danny, what are the geopolitical implications of slowing down? Well... It's, it's it's really hard to know, you know. It's in the only thing that I felt really sure about in the book was simply describing the past in a different kind of way, looking at the rates of change, trying my hardest to get the best data, drawing a picture using high quality data, and then saying that's interesting. Now, over this period of acceleration, there have been incredible geo- geopolitical changes. One of the early graphs in the book is actually about publishing of, of books. And you can see the publishing of books, I think it's in the Netherlands. And you can, you can see when publishers published fewer books because they were being burnt, because books were seen as heretical at various points. So, so the Slowdown book charts this sort of incredible political 
history, and particularly the growth of Europe, the power of the Netherlands and Amsterdam, which was the richest place in the world, where half of the profit of Europe at one point went through when the Baltic trade was, was so big. And then it shifts to London and to the, to the United Kingdom and to England, and then it shifts to the United States. And as the world market grows, as the number of people grow, each of these centres of world activities becomes more and more and more powerful. That change grinds to an absolute halt at the moment. It isn't possible for there to be another United States, you know, five times bigger, five times more powerful, because the human population, the planet, the GDP isn't going to rise that large. So the suggestion is that what we begin to see is something which isn't about superpowers moving around and changing, but are settling down. Uh, We see a reduction in the share of global wealth that the rich part of the world holds, that part around Japan, around Korea, around Europe and around North America. Uh, We, of course, see a rise in the power of China, but we don't see China taking over the world in a slower changing uh, world in future. In particular, what we see for China is, is a very large country which is facing one of the most rapid population decelerations about to happen. And huge questions about how, how China uh, will actually deal with that. And also, you would hope, given some of the things which have accelerated, the proportion of people in the world who've gone to university and in a sense been told that they're clever enough to think for themselves. Or if you look at how the number of wars has gone down in the world, the number of people who die in wars has gone down dramatically. If you think about how much older we are now on average. We're an ageing global population. You would hope that geopolitically we could be a little bit more clever than we have been in the past. Uh, that, that I'm naturally an optimist, but there isn't a trend that makes me think we'll be scrabbling around and fighting each other for smaller and smaller breadcrumbs. What the trends make me think when, when I look at them is the future is places like Tokyo, places that have not changed for quite a long time, places of fairly stable population, slight population growth in Tokyo, places where the structure of the city will probably be similar for decades ahead, places where people move around by public transport, not by cars because it's more efficient, places of relatively low crime, and again, Tokyo is an example of that, and places, and this is where I get most optimistic, (laughs) but places of relatively higher rates of equality, Because while you're accelerating, you can tell people, stay with us, stay with the programme. The world is getting richer. You will, in future, if not you, your children will be okay. But once you've got a slowing down situation, once GDP isn't growing, people begin to demand a fairer share of what's available, rather than accepting the promise that because we'll, say, build more mansions in future, you will get a mansion. People will actually begin to say, hold on. Why can't I have a little bit more space to live in when they have more space than they actually need to live in, looking at some other people? Um, so I, things will go wrong, and the things that go wrong are always the things that we can't necessarily predict. They come as shocks. But there's lots of reasons to be optimistic because we're not out of con- our control. We are not having more and more children who are going to be fighting about a diminishing resource. We're having fewer children and we're learning to use resources in cleverer ways, and we're beginning to think much more cleverly about pollution and also about what makes us happy. 
and that's if you if you like one one sort of analogy of this about what makes us happy is it changes as you get older when you're younger it is travel excitement and so on as you get older what makes you happier becomes smaller longer and often say in the uk people just say a garden (laughs) now it's easier to supply people with a garden than trips Mm. around the planet so danny we should get used to a slow growth future and stagnant standards of living um yes but we shouldn't use the word stagnant we should get used to the idea that our children will have a very similar standard of living to us and behave in similar uh ways to us uh there will still be change of course everything isn't going to suddenly stop and there could be huge social changes huge changes in how we treat how we see each other uh things that we currently do will be seen as anathema things that we we you know, you and I think are completely right to do, and we wouldn't argue about them. Our grandchildren's generation will say, can you believe they really believed in this? Well, I won't come up with an example because by definition it has to be something we would think of as ridiculous. So it's not that things are not going to change, but in terms of consumption, in terms of the amount of travel, we shouldn't expect dramatic increases in the future. We should expect similar one one last example to try and give you about this. Uh, when I was growing up, I grew up in a family of six. I had had three brothers, so quite a large family. And we, we had one metal dustbin, quite small metal dustbin outside that we put our rubbish in. And I wasn't a poor family. I was a middle class family. Outside my home at the moment are three giant plastic bins, one for recyclables, one for normal waste and one for garden waste. But I... I, not just me, the average person in Britain is throwing away six times more than their parents threw away, which means that they're purchasing six times more. And it's not just excess packaging. People really were more careful in the past. A stable, you might say stagnant future, is simply one in which our children will not be throwing away six times more than us. And there's nothing wrong in that. It would be madness if they were buying so much off the internet that they needed even more bins outside their houses. Uh, so it's the things that I can measure where I see the stability. There will be other things that we don't measure, things that we do where we will see accelerations, but they're not the things that, that we commonly measure at the moment. Why is slowing down so hard to see? We're programmed, um, I think, to look for and hope and expect the opposite because that was what was normal um certainly for our parents lives even more for their parents even more for their parents you know discovering new countries news coming from somewhere else a new invention the telephone telegram um and it's our way of speaking and our way of, of 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 doing our way of being is is acceleration it's normal we're used to speeding speeding forward isn't for us speeding it's it's normal and when it stops it's disconcerting and it reminds us i mean the last time we had two generations like the two i just described to you which lived similar you have to go back six or seven generations ago and you go back uh, to all of our great 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 grandparents and almost all of them they were in villages and they were growing food 
that's the case almost everywhere around the world. Uh, it differs only by a hundred years between one place and another when we began to urbanise and in- industrialise. So we see stability as being that rural, pedestrian, predictable, maybe a life that we're frightened about. That's not what we're going to have. Our slower future will be urban. We will be in cities, so, so it's different. But we, we don't have the imagination to see it like that. But you can say the most ridiculous thing, I think it's Justin Trudeau, I have a quote from him where he, he says something like, the speed of change has never been as fast as now, but, you know, it'll never be as slow again as we're living now. This was he, he put it better than that. And he did it, which is why he was at Davos and I wasn't. But, you know, he could say something. Uh, Trudeau can say something about the speed of change. No evidence, but completely believable. Because... We, we have an idea. Also, of course, for those of us who get to write books and make comment on the media more often, our personal speed of change has often been quite fast. You know, we have been promoted in jobs. We have travelled around the world. We have seen New York and Auckland and Delhi and, you know, more, more than other people. So we might have a sense of an acceleration because our lives have been accelerated but the data doesn't show that for everybody. And, and also, when we look back on our lives, you know, I've travelled a lot of places, I'm a geographer, but it really is no excuse. Did I really need to go to all those places just for one or two days to see them? You know, how, in, in a way, you know, it, that, that kind of, seeing that acceleration is good. It's hard to say to people, you can actually have a better time not travelling quite as much, spending longer in places, getting to know them. And you don't need to tick off the big tourist sites. It isn't something that will necessarily make you happy. In, in a study which isn't in this book, I actually look at changing rates of happiness for the British population and, and what happens to them each year. And what we find, and it's very predictable once you hear it, is that what makes people happy is good health and having children. Not actually looking after children, but having them makes them happy. What makes people sad is poor health and deaths in their family and so on. And the neutral thing of 32 things that happen to people in a year is going on holiday. It neither makes people happier or less happy on average. Uh, But we tend to think of a holiday and getting away as, as a great thing. The reality of it isn't something that necessarily changes how happy you are. Not to say holidays aren't a bad idea, uh, but I suspect that people will not be flying away as much and spending as much in future as they do now because they'll be working out better ways to rest than they they currently uh, Mm. do at the moment. Why is it so important to see the slowdown in terms of our lives? Because if it is true, and I say if, you know, I've only drawn 67 graphs in this book. I've put a few more hundred up on the website. I've, I've tried not to be biased. I really have looked... If it's true, I honestly think there's a lot to be thankful for about it. Most importantly, uh, our children are going to be the first children in the history of this whole species to see the species number stabilise. All species stabilise at some point. Humans are a very young species. It It is quite an exciting time to be alive at a point where... We're not living brutal lives. 
Most people aren't. World life expectancy is in the 70s, highing up. Infant mortality has never been lower. There was a point a few years ago where it was falling by 10% in a year worldwide. This is the best news ever on the planet. Fewer, fewer babies dying. In Finland, a few years ago, infant mortality got down to the lowest it's been anywhere in the world ever. So, you know, I would... And that's all part of the slowdown. That is working out what is really important. Finland is not a country of acceleration of huge GDP growth. It's a country that is preparing to be carbon neutral before other countries. It is a country in which people do share things out more equitably, like they do in Japan, like they don't in the UK. Again, my political bias may well be coming in here, but the places with the lower fertility, the places that appear to be ahead in the slowdown curve, are places where there are fewer people are homeless, where things are better arranged. Places that still desperately want acceleration, and the United States might be the best example for this, are not in the rich world the places where people have the best health, the best educational outcomes, where housing is best distributed. Grasping after accelerating, thinking that you need more economic growth, that somehow it will trickle down to everybody. I think we've got to the point where we can see that isn't happening and it doesn't necessarily work. And you're better off living in a more stable advanced country that has been slowing down for longer than living in a country that's more unstable where your politicians are desperately trying to get growth back or as fast as they can, thinking that it's the panacea. They won't be able to, but also it isn't a panacea. I'm going to finish with how you finish the book. You finish with the question, what do you hope for in the future? So tell our listeners your personal answer. Uh, what I hope for, I, I've written too many books, really. I've been very lucky but I have written a lot of books. And personally, it's a very strange wish, but I, I wish to write a few few less. And I wish to see a wider, range of, a wider range of people producing things and producing them maybe a bit more carefully than I did in the, in the past. This book did take me six or seven years to do, so it's, it's a long one, long one. But the kind of, the hurtling life that I've had, where you're always trying to do more and faster because that is what the universities you work for want and so on. When you look back at it, half the things that I did and wrote and so on, actually the world would have been no worse off if half of what I did in my life I'd never done. The tricky thing, of course, is at the time, you never know which half it is that you shouldn't be doing. Oh, lovely. Thank you very much, Danny, for your thought-provoking book, Slowdown. It's a great combination of intriguing historical analysis and coverage of a wide range of issues that matter for how we think about our lives. So thank you very much for this podcast. For more podcasts, please go to intelligencesquare.com. And thank you for listening. I'm Linda Yu. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. 
We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.